Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow The Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. I believe that the financial crisis let so many people down, and they said... We thought that they had it. We thought, we thought these guys had it. They told us it was going to be okay, and it wasn't okay. And I think that that unto itself has changed America. My name is Jeffrey Zakarian, and you're listening to Four Courses with Jeffrey Zakarian from iHeartRadio. In Four Courses, I'll be taking you along for the ride while I talk with the top talent of our time. In each conversation, I focus on four different areas from my guest's life and career. And during those four courses, I'm going to dig deep and uncover new insights and inspirations that we can all use to fuel ourselves to push forward. My guest for this episode still has posters of Michael Jordan and Spike Lee on his childhood bedroom wall. His part-time job during college happened to be writing for the New York Times, where he penned 71 articles before he graduated. And he's an extremely insightful observer of politics, finance, technology, and power. Please enjoy my conversation with my friend and a daily regular customer at my Midtown restaurant, The Lambs Club, Andrew Ross Sorkin. Hey, Andrew, thank you so much uh, for doing this. I know it's been a while. And uh, I was just- Thank you uh, for having me. It has been so long. I know. I, you know, I follow you religiously. You well, thank I, well, you. I, I happen to, I watch the reality show of your life as it happens <laughs> on Instagram. And I I can't claim to try to follow your recipes because I am, I will admit, I, I like to go to your restaurants for a reason because I'm not nearly as handy in the kitchen. It's very kind of you to do this and thank you for following me. So we're just going to start with the first course, which is like an amuse-bouche, okay. right? You get a little something the chef gives you. Right. And then you start to drink and talk and eat. So that's our first course. Well, hold on. Do we get the, fi- the fifth course for me? My favorite fifth course, <laughs> by the way, typically when I go eat lunch at your place, 
is when we get to talk right at the bar at the end about the business of restaurants and typically how much I've overeaten and how you're in such good shape and you happen to be a cook and how that even is supposed to work. (laughs) For our first course, Andrew described his early exposure to the hustle and bustle of New York City and his fascination with an unexpected side of popular media. I am fascinated by, always fascinated because I, whoever I interview and whatever I talk about, the childhood and that upbringing is always so, so important because you can see six or seven definitive things in someone's upbringing that is so shockingly obvious in their successful careers. And I want to go there with you, if you don't mind. Let's go there. My father worked very, very hard. I mean, as I said, like incredibly hard and had just the greatest sort of work ethic and discipline. And I almost rebelled against that as a child. I didn't. No, no. (laughs) But what's so strange about it now is I I work like a crazy person. But as a kid, I never wanted to be that. I never wanted that. In fact, uh, I used to hate reading if you can believe this, given the perfect, given the profession I'm in, I hated reading because my dad was constantly reading, reading briefs, reading the newspaper. Oh my God, I I couldn't stand the newspaper because he was reading it. And on a Saturday, I would want to go, you know, into the backyard, play soccer, whatever. And he was like reading the paper that was going on. My mother happened to be a playwright. Interesting. And she wrote children's plays, by the way, in addition to adult plays, put on, we put on plays in our backyard, in our living room, all sorts of stuff. So I, I sort of got it, whatever I got, I think, from them. It's hard to explain, but there, there was a lot of drive. Part of it was I think I needed to prove myself to them, to be honest with you, and to myself, and to myself. There was a, lot, a lot of it was that. You're around a playwright and a, and a very successful attorney and a lot of paper. I mean, just imagine, I imagine your mom leaving manuscripts around. And oh, your my God, you don't want to even around. her office right now. It's like up to the, oh, my God, it, it's like a fire hazard, the paper. <laughs> That's just amazing. So you were surrounded by paper. And I couldn't stand paper. I couldn't stand any of it. All I wanted to do was watch television. I, but I was... And I'm, this part is hard for me to um, explain. I was fascinated by media the whole time. Ah. All I cared about was the media. I would watch TV like it was going, you know, like it was going to be the last day you could ever watch TV. I would watch anything. What were your favorite shows? That's really important. It's really important. Oh, my favorite God. Shows. I mean, I love like the A-Team back in the day. If you remember the A-Team. Yep. Yeah, with Mr. I T. Do. Like that was sort Mr. of T. in my... I don't think you could say today that you like the Dukes of Hazard, right? I think that that's not. No, no. I don't I know like what. That. I, I no, watch I know, that. but I don't know. You know, those Confederate flags and lots of things. So I, I don't know what. Yeah. They, I'm just. <laughs> I'm just saying the world's moved in different, 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 different ways. I was also going to say, look, I grew up watching the Cosby Show, right? I, again, great show back then. Show I know. I mean, it's all ha- there's hazard everywhere. Hazard everywhere. I mean, that's like a, a hazardous swamp <laughs> right there. <laughs> the I, I feel like I'm going to ruin myself here. I was going to say <laughs> when I was in. Fifth grade, I want to say fifth grade, it was probably the first, maybe the first concert I ever went to in my life and probably the best. And again, now you can't say this aloud. Michael Jackson, 1988, the, the, bad, the, the bad tour. And, oh. and I remember thinking, wow, that's amazing. I mean, what he did on the, on the stage, let's put everything else aside for, for the moment. So yeah, that's, that's the kind of thing, you know, maybe reruns of the Brady Bunch, that kind of thing. But I also, I would come home in the afternoon against my, you know, my mother, if she saw me watching TV, but I would watch the People's Court, Supreme Court, all of these, 
nonsense shows. And if I was sick at home, I'd be watching. What was the great show where, where the guy would say, dynamite? What's, you know what I'm talking about in Chicago? Oh, Jesus. What, what show was that? And so that's a little bit of a culture in terms of what I grew up, you know, and I grew up listening to Z100 and, and you know, 95.5 WPLJ. That was like, oh my God. Yeah. that was, I know, that was it. How in the world, uh, I imagine now this makes some sense here. So media is very important. You didn't really know it, but sort of seems to me like uh, legal briefs. Here we go. Yep. Stack a playwright, your mom's, you know, stack here. Right. You're basically bored. You're in between them. You're trying to play soccer and watch some games and you're, you don't know where to go. You want to get away from both, but you're drawn into both. It just seems like that was it. I love I love the media, but I and I'll, but but in particular, I should tell you, I loved advertising. Really, I was it, I was fascinated by advertising. I used to watch the Super Bowl as much for the game as oh. for the ads, and I would read. You know, back then, I don't think they're still in business. I think maybe they are. Ad Age magazine and Ad Week. These were like the trades. And I, yes. I was fascinated by like Wyden and Kennedy, which back then had created those fabulous ad campaigns around, you know, Michael Jordan and Spike Lee together. I still have posters in my, my childhood room, which has not been changed. My wife jokes like a museum, but I have these old posters. That's what I, that's what I just loved. I loved advertising and sport. And back then, by the time I got into high school, obviously sports and in particular you know, Jordan was like, you know, I, I love the, I love the Knicks. It's harder to love the Knicks today. But back then it was like, you know, that was a Patrick Ewing, the, the age of Patrick Ewing. You know, I'm thinking baseball. I love baseball. But, it, you know, that was like Daryl Strawberry. Mo- oh, my God. Mo- another Mo- another problem. Mookie, Will- you, <laughs> Mookie, you, Mookie Wilson. You, you remember Mookie? The, I love Mookie. Yeah, I remember Mookie. I mean, you were in the crosshairs of problems. Michael Jackson. We just named like seven lightning rods. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. It was my it was a generational thing. It was a generation. Yeah. No, I know that. Mookie Wilson. LT on the Giants. LT, LT. I mean, you know, this is, this is what I grew up with. I mean, advertising, playwright, attorney. Yep. Now we're cooking, right? Yep. Now we're cooking. Now you're seeing what's we're going starting on. starting to figure out. Yeah, just I see what's going throw on Throw it in here. the stew. Yep. For our second course, Andrew outlined his path for landing a role at the New York Times, which began with excitement for selling advertisements in his high school sports magazine. But to, to back the story up for half a second, because it's really what actually led to the whole career, even pre-Cornell, was I was 15 years old loving, loving advertising, as I was just telling you. And I wanted to, I decided when, in my, inside my high school to start a sports magazine. That's how this all began. I wanted to start a sports magazine, not because I cared actually about sports per se, but because I thought I could sell advertising to kids inside the school and kids like sports. They do. And that was the idea. And I was trying to be like, do you, do you know who Christopher Whittle was? Of course. He, I just, he's selling his home in the Hamptons because he's got to pay off the- Oh, right. So he started, right. He, he started the, the private school. Avenues. Yes. But before that, he had something called Channel One, where he was, yeah. he was distributing TVs all over the country yeah. to schools. There was a little, little bit of advertising attached to some news. And yeah. I thought I would do that in the magazine world. So very smart. I, I start this thing when, when I'm 15. We try to turn it into a national magazine. We fail spectacularly along the way by the time I'm about 17 or 18. But we had advertising. We had all sorts of amazing things going on. There was a, a guy who I owe my career to, a guy named Richard Holt at Saatchi and Saatchi. Richard Holt. Who bought, he bought some of the first ads. He bought the back page, full page ad for Wheaties with Michael Jordan on the back. Wow. And he represented champion sweatshirts. And so those were, my, I think, the first 
two big advertisers we had. Anyway, it was that experience from 15 to 17 that got me totally hooked on wanting to be in the media. And all I wanted to do was be an entrepreneur. I didn't want to be a writer. I never, I don't even like writing today, by the way. I find it very hard. I have visions of people like Michael Lewis playing the keyboard like a piano. I don't play like a piano. I, <laughs> I, I play it with two fingers. It's painful. It's not, it's not possible. Come I on. I mean, I've learned how to do it a little bit, but, but for me, it was never uh, a natural act. Never, never, never. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. 
you know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Okay, so we're, we're going into the senior year. You're editing. Can you describe your senior year? Because you published like 70 articles. So I'm in high school. I, I do this magazine. The New York Times happens to actually write about this magazine that I'm working on, which of course then doesn't go anywhere. But right. it was sort of a... You know, your I don't know, your 15 minutes of fame or whatever, and who knew what, something like that would happen. Anyway, when I'm at the end of my senior year in high school, all I wanted to do in life was work for a guy named Stuart Elliott, who was the advertising columnist at the New York Times. This guy uh-huh. was my, like, literal god. I used to read him every day. Most people picked up the New York Times. They'd read the front page. They'd read the sports page. I would go to page C6 or C7 to read what Stuart had to write about advertising. That was it. So I wrote him a letter and I said I wanted to go work for him for free for five weeks before, you know, before I died. All I want to do is meet this man. And somehow he was kind enough. There was no internship program. So he says, why don't you come in and and have lunch with me? And I went in. I had lunch actually at Virgil's with him. That's next door. Next door to you. That's next door. (laughs) And we and then we went back to the building and he he toured me around the building. And somehow I persuaded him to let me come for five weeks. We didn't tell anybody what the deal was. We just sort of did it. I didn't have a desk or anything. I used to wait in the, in the, in the lobby and I get a visitor pass every day and I would Xerox and staple for him. That is incredible. What a great story. And then there was a fabulous editor named Felicity Barringer who had no idea who I was or how old I was. And I, I wear a, you know, a tie and a blazer to try to look like the part and I'm only 18. And she overhears me talking about this thing called the internet Right. That thing. Back when, you know, we'd write modem, comma, a device that transmits data over a phone line. Right. Yeah. And she comes up to me and she had just been assigned to start a section all around technology. This is 1995. She needed anything. She needed anything. So so she so she asked me to write this story. I go to Stuart and I tell him and he's like, you're in you're in effing high school. You can't do this. And then somehow we went for pizza. Actually, we went for pizza. And he said, he said, "Okay, why don't you try to write the article? So I wrote the article. He, of course, edited when I say edited, probably rewrote it. And they published it the next day or the next Monday, because I remember there was a weekend in between. Anyway, that's how my career began. And that's what I said. I had no intention of putting two words together, let alone a sentence. I still find it very challenging. But it seems like. You had some people who really watched after oh you. Oh my God, the best. Like some mentors and some people. So tell, let's talk about like, like who really shaped you and said like, you're really good. This is what you got to do. And this is, if you just do this, you, you're going to, you're going to do great. Who are your mentors and who like gave you some really good advice early on? Stuart Elliott was it. I mean, he, w- you know, Stuart used to come to my restaurant. Yep. He would have breakfast there every morning. Sometimes I'd meet him there and walk to, to the office with him. Well, he was one of the nicest, kindest guys ever. Well, he still is one of the nicest, kindest guys. No, he is. Guy. I mean, he always has been. I, I don't talk to him enough these days. He retired from the, from the Times, but he, he, was, he was probably singularly the most important person in terms of my, my, my early life. Uh, Glenn Cremon, who was the business editor and, and, the, and the business editor following him, Larry Gracia, played huge you know, instrumental roles and in, in everything. And then briefly, I, you know, I lived in London for a while. 
working for the New York Times and, and Warren Hogue. I don't know if you remember Warren. That's my dream to live in London. I love that city. It's a beautiful city. Warren was the London bureau chief and he had a place. The New York Times back then had an apartment, really. It was almost like a house, townhouse for him uh, near Sloan Square. And he told me oh. when I he told me when I moved to London, he said, you have to find a, a flat near here so we can walk to work together. And those walks and all of the stuff we did together was so great. I lived in a, you know, I was trying to live in Sloan Square and had no money. I, I lived in a basement flat with rats and it was kind of gross, but it was, but the walks, Cultured rats, though, but the walks were worth it. We were right, it was, it was right behind <laughs> Peter Jones, if you know where Peter Jones is. I know where Peter Jones is. Yep. Wow. For our third course, Andrew told me about how he came up with the idea for his innovative newsletter, Deal Book, which was one of the first major financial news aggregators on the internet. So you came back. I came back in 2000, back. 2000, 2001, I guess. And before then, 9-11. Right before 9-11, in fact. And that's and it was actually right when I started thinking about trying to create, I, I was actually thinking about whether I was going to stay in the business, to be honest with you, because I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I told you, I wanted to be on the business side of business in a way. When I graduated from college and went to the New York Times in London, I, I had friends who were all going to be consultants and this and that. And I sort of always thought I would, you know, do something for a couple of years and go to law school or business school or something. And that was just sort of like the classic path that all these, these kids were doing. So I thought, oh, you know what? I'll work at the New York Times. This is an unbelievable opportunity. I'll, I'll, I'll learn about a lot of different businesses and industries. I'll meet some interesting people. Then I'll go to school and I'll, then I'll figure out what to do with the rest of it. Smart. But anyway, that was my, that was the thought. Anyway, I came back to New York and I had this crazy idea to create a newsletter. I, I thought if you could, if you could start sending yes. stuff out to people by email, it was actually a bit of an end run around the paper because I was sad. I moved back to New York and I was meeting all these bankers and lawyers and, you know, the, the fancy people I, I wanted to cover, frankly, and get their, you know, the, the big business news stories in the New York Times. And very sadly, I'd meet with them and they'd say, you know, Sorkin, you, you know, I, I, we get the Times at home. I read the front page. I read the sports section. I take the journal with me on the train. Oh, ouch. 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 And that was really, but it was, it was an awakening back then. How do I get in front of these people then? How, how's the New York Times going to get in front of these people? And, and so in a way, Dealbook, that's how it began. It was, okay, let's send everybody. But that's so early on. How did you put Dealbook together? The internet was just, it was, it was sprightly then. It wasn't what it is now. How did you, how did you tr transition to that? How did you find that out so soon? No, it, well, there were people do, doing, I don't want to say blogs. Not really. Then, it was early. It was early. And I thought, was this was, early. I thought this was a way inside the inbox. If I could get to the inbox, we might have a shot. And then we could show how competitive we were. And so I thought I could really aggregate lots of news from lots of different sources because I was spending my day running around the internet trying to find stuff. And I knew that all these people in the business were doing the same thing. So if I could put it in one place for them and show them all the New York Times stuff on top of it, that was, that was sort of the what I saw as the opportunity. The deal book really, to me, seemed like your, your spring up, your leverage, your like everything. It seemed like that that brought everything you were doing very much together and you got some real shazam going on there. Well, it, it, I got to tell you, so it, 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 I remember that when we first started, I think somebody at the time said maximum sub subscriber list you'll ever get, I think was... Something like 50,000 or 60,000. Oh, my God. And I think we blew through that. That's like two days. I, now, well, right? I don't know if we did that, but we, no, we blew through that in, in, in the first couple months. And then I remember you get emails from back then. I remember getting people, I remember getting 
Joe Perella. You know Joe Perella, the banker? Yeah, sure. I remember his, his assistant or secretary calling us up and saying, could you fax this to us in the morning? Wow. And I mean, that was That's what was great. going on. And you'd get I mean, Jeffrey Immolt and all these people. Anyway, so we had this whole sort of crew that was reading. I mean, t- today we're getting close to a million that get this thing every morning. What does it cost? Well, it's, it's a part of the New York Times. So if you're free, it's free. But it was always based on an advertising model, which was that this was going to be the most premium premier people that advertisers were trying to reach. In fact, my fir- the first advertiser was Brooks Brothers, which I'll never wow. forget. Because when we started it, we started right af- as the dot-com bust was beginning. And I said, I don't want to do this unless we can make it profitable. And we were profitable from the beginning. So that was, that was, that was, that was, that was important to me because I, I wanted to do great journalism, but I also wanted to have a good business. So well, you must have known that the internet was going to be a tremendous opportunity at that point to sort of spread the news quickly and sort of collate for everyone, curate for everyone and just sort of give them what they need in dribs and drabs, which is now gone. It was probably a thousand words. Now it's down to 140 characters. So can you talk about that? Like, how did, how did you know? And when did, when did you say, what was your aha? Well, look, if I'm being, if I, if I really knew, right. And I was a, a demonstrable entrepreneur, you probably would have, <laughs> you, you, you probably would have left, left the, and you would have, and you would have started Twitter yourself, which I did not do, obviously. It's okay. I, I don't well, know. We all could have invested in Twitter, right? I don't think I knew where it would all go. I was, for example, I'll tell you, I didn't know, I understood the advertising model very well. I was never sure how easily, and the Times is now doing spectacularly with the subscription business. You know, there was a whole period where people didn't know if there'd be a, where you could make the transition, whether people would really pay for news. And I remember being very anxious about that. Clearly, I was, I was too anxious about it. And so, they do. And they do. And they do. But part of that, I think, is the tremendous quality of the Times. But I also give enormous amount of credit, frankly, to the Netflixes and, and Spotify's of the world that I think trained people to pay. And I think it was those on-ramps originally that sort of shifted the mindset so people would be willing to pay for news and just willing to pay for stuff in a way that they, in subscriptions that they hadn't before. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does the hard parts for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more with a home management team that provides support before, during, and after your stay so you can focus on the relaxing, hosting, and making memories with family and friends. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. With Picasso, you can stop saying someday and start building family traditions today in a vacation home you own and revisit time after time. Visit Picasso.com today to see thousands of luxury vacation home listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot 
This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries. Well, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claim for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. For our fourth and final course, Andrew breaks down how he meticulously researched his book, Too Big to Fail, a book which many consider the finest account of the 2008 financial crisis. But I want to like focus a bit upon your book, Too Big to Fail, and then the movie. And what, I'm, what's, what struck me about it was the ease at which I read that and the ease at which you've collected this information. And I, it was almost like I say to myself, how the f- did he know what was happening? It was like you were in the room when it happened. So how did that happen? And tell me, how did you get people to be confident enough to tell you that story so you could write that down and make this an incredible? Well, thank you. Incredible. Thank you I mean, so much for saying that. How did you know how to put all those pieces together so, so seamlessly? Okay, so the truth is I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't. I remember when I got... No, I know you didn't. I, mean, no I had never written probably more than 5,000 words. Maybe I'd written some magazine pieces or stuff. I, I remember when I first got the advance for the book, I, I told my wife, we're going to have to give the money back. Like this, this we're never going to... It was almost a personal challenge to myself to see whether I could write a book. I didn't know how it was all going to work out. I didn't have all the reporting in my notebook ready to go. And, of I course, and I didn't know necessarily all the people, especially at the top. I knew a lot of people d- down the ladder. So how did you sell the book? So when you said, look, I, I have three books, I have to go and I write a synopsis. Right. So I wrote a synopsis. There was a crazy sort of uh, frenzy mania around this whole, course, this whole yeah. thing. There were about three or four people trying to sell books at the same time. My friend, Joan, Jonas Sarah, who you probably know, and, and several others. Everybody was, was 
trying to do this. Charlie Gasparino had a book. There was, there was a lot of people trying to write books about during the Roger Lowenstein, who I love. So many, so many talented people trying to do this. And so I went in and said, I'm just going to do the inside. I wanted to, I loved a great yarn. I used to read, you know, Barbarians at the Gate, you know, by Brian Burrow or Den of Thieves. And I just wanted to replicate. I, I thought if somebody could do that to this and the only insight I had about this whole thing that might have been helpful or different was that I really did see it as a people story. I didn't see, I think at the time, everybody saw this as a big institutional story, big institutions, big numbers, or they saw it as a siloed story. So, you know, people want to do books yeah. about Lehman Brothers or they want to do a book about Merrill Lynch or AIG or this or that. I saw it as a story about people who I, who I, and this was something I knew from the reporting, who were all interconnected. I knew that there was basically 20 or 30 people basically running the world at that point. And that if you could tell it through those people and what was actually happening, you could see it. It, it would hopefully help the public understand what was going on because, and I knew it was dramatic, but I didn't know how dramatic. I love the fact that it was on a timeline. It's a very effective way to tell a story. It was told in a way that felt like, okay, this guy's in the room. He's looking at every meeting. He sees everybody's face. He understands who the players are, their importance, where they are. Uh, on the food chain. How did you establish that? And how did you get your information to be so accurate? I li so literally we made crazy timelines. I mean, the most detailed timelines that could exist. I, I, I had a great researcher who would put, help me put these timelines together. And then I would go and do lots. I mean, just, I was interviewing everybody constantly. And I started obviously farther down the, the, the chain, if you will, or the, uh, the corporate ladder. And people would say, oh, you know, do you know about the meeting at John Mack's house on Saturday morning? Do you, do you know about that meeting? <laughs> Just you, like that. I, yeah. No, but sometimes they'd say that they weren't at the meeting. Yeah. But they'd say, there was a meeting. You need to go find out about that meeting because that's because I remember after that meeting, we got a million emails. Yeah. And then I'd go find out who was at that meeting. And then maybe I'd finally find somebody who went to the meeting. And they'd say, yeah, yeah, I was at the meeting. And we showed up and I'd say, what time is it at? And I'd say, what'd you guys eat? Like I was asking the kind of questions. That's fantastic. The one thing I used to do that you would appreciate is because I was always trying to get the detail of like what was happening inside at the restaurant or, or this or that. A lot of people forget. They don't know. They, 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 you know. People don't have the best memory. If they said to me, I had lunch with a group of people or dinner. At, I remember this one at San Pietro. You'd ask them questions about, about what was said at dinner. They wouldn't necessarily remember. However... I used to go on menu pages and I would print out the menus, print them out from menupages.com. And I'd show up at the interview and I, to jostle their memory, I'd show them the menu. And I'd say, well, what'd you, what'd you eat? Do you remember what you ate? And they'd tell you what they ate. And they'd say, yeah, yeah, actually I ate this. And you know what? So-and-so was across from me and you know, he was really annoying because he was chewing ice the whole time. And then he kept wanting, and then, <laughs> and then he wanted to eat, you know, and then he's eating off of my plate. And then, and then all of a sudden they're thinking, right? And then they're like, oh yeah, yeah. And then in the middle of it, this happens. John Mack comes in. Whatever, exactly. right? And so all of these little things to sort of prod people to get their memory back. I used to go look at the, I get the weather, the humidity. I remember a guy told me that he walked from one building to another building and he didn't really remember anything about it. And then I called him back up. I said, do you realize that it was 98 degrees that day and like the humidity was like 100%? He's like, oh, yes, you're right. Because when I got there, my undershirt was totally sweating and I had to go to the bathroom and I'm like, you know, you know, trying to towel off. And then I ran into so-and-so in the hallway. Oh, wow. And it was so it's a, it's a lot of it is trying 
to sort of do that. It's like uh, gumshoe journalism almost. It's like- I, don't know, I don't think it's gumshoe. Uh, I, I, I know a lot of great real investigative reporters. I like to do, think I do some investigative reporting, but this is, this is more, it's a, it's a different, it's a different approach in a certain way to just get them to, to, to talk. And so how did you reveal, how did you know? I mean, the, the book is so detailed about what was discussed. How do you find, who told you this stuff? I mean, I was a beneficiary. I would say, I would say, you, you know, usually if there were five people in the room, I oftentimes got to speak to, you know, four out of the five, Sometimes five out of the five, sometimes three out of the five. But, you know, and then oftentimes there were emails that would get sent after the after the meeting saying so and so this just happened. There were, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people back then had uh, speaker phones. So a lot of the calls would happen. There'd be a principal on the phone and maybe I wouldn't maybe the principal wouldn't be the person who told me the first thing. But there'd be other people in the room who'd be listening to it. The other thing I always found was a junior person. If you could find a junior person who happened to be at the meeting. So like Hank Paulson had a million meetings with Ben Bernanke. They might not have actually remembered anything about the meeting. If you could find a junior person who happened to be at that meeting, that was like the most important thing that ever happened in their whole life. And they usually took notes. <laughs> it's like, this is fantastic. So it was just, you know, it, that's, that's how it happened. So that's 2007 and eight. And I'm thinking it's 2021. What are your thoughts? I mean, it's 13 years later. Where's your head at with what happened then and what hap- what's happening now? Not that they're anything to do with each other, but it was a total sort of like a reaction, almost a clinical mathematical reaction. And here we are in a, a personal life or death reaction. Uh, they were both pandemics. I actually do think they're connected in, a, in, a, in an important way. No, obviously, the pandemic didn't happen as a result of the crisis, but I think actually something happened during the crisis that's changed America and that manifested itself over the last decade and it manifested itself, I think, in a relatively terrible way during the pandemic, which is the financial crisis effectively undermined the idea of credibility for big institutions, for experts, for authority in America, for the plutocrats, for the 1%, and for the idea of truth, actually. I believe that. I believe that the financial crisis let so many people down and they said, we thought that they had it. We thought, we thought these guys had it. They told us it was going to be okay and it wasn't okay. And I think that that unto itself has changed America in, in so many different ways. But I think it manifested itself when it comes to not listening to experts, when it, when it comes to not listening to big institutions in, in how so much of this pandemic has played out and in our response to it. So masking what doctors are saying. Everybody's made it, everyone's creating their own truth now. And I think that the financial crisis had, had a role in that actually. Interesting. What's next for you in a quick, quick dessert? We'll have a quick dessert. What's next? I kind of like this approach. I'd love to, I'd love to write more books. I told you we're working with Jason Blum and, and Lena Motto now and the folks at HBO to, to, to put something together on GameStop. Love it. And I, and I, you know, I love waking up in the morning with the, with the team on Squawk. It's, I get to have breakfast every day with some of the most interesting people in the world and then putting together a deal book every day and uh, writing these columns. So if I, if I get to just keep doing that, I, I, that way I get to touch a lot of different meals, right? A lot of different kind of food, food choices there for me. It tastes good. It's fun. So Well, keep up everything. And I, I can't wait to see you back at the uh, at Lambs Club. I don't know when we're going to open. 
Um, we're, we're working it. Well, my fingers are crossed and I hope we all get the vaccine soon. So. Yeah, I really, I believe that. I used up all my time, but I think really wisely. Uh, thank you so much. Thank Andrew, you. And this uh, was have, a ball. Have a wonderful day. Cool. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks very much for listening to Four Courses with Jeffrey Zakarian, a production of iHeartRadio and Corner Table Entertainment. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. Four Courses is produced by Jonathan Hawes Dressler. Our research is conducted by Jesslyn Shields. This episode was edited and mixed by Joe Tisdall. Our talent booking is by Pamela Bauer at Dogtown Talent. This episode was engineered by Andrew Ross Sorkin and Molly Swanson. And special thanks to our entire team, Margaret Zakarian, Jarrett Keller, Tara Halper, and Molly Swanson, without whom this would not have come together. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.